From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. You, you didn't have any brothers growing up, did you? Or sisters either. Yeah, I can tell. Uh, welcome to EWTN's Open Life Friday. Colin Donovan is spreading out in the studio here in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to be on the program today. To talk about theology, not necessarily spatial awareness. Uh, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 271 2985 And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email, open line at EWTN.com, or you can text your question, text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response, text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is, every single Friday, the spoiled brat only child, Colin Donovan. <laughs> okay, I don't know how to follow up on that. That's from one spoiled brat only child to another. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, you know. <laughs> You know, it's sort of like an Irishman making Irish jokes. <laughs> that's right. right. You that's exactly. You that's can't ex- do it. That's exactly right. Exactly. I am left-handed, though. That makes me superior. Oh. <laughs> Not if you're the ancient Romans. Well, I'm the only one at the table in my right mind. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think they attributed a certain amount of genius and specialness to left-handed. Oh, well, there you go. Even Thank though you. they called Appreciate it sinister. Sinistre, yeah. <laughs> when you're in Italy exactly. and getting off the train. They tell you which side the doors are going to open on, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> You know, and it's, it's another just another ha- having nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. But another interesting fact is that in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, mm-hmm. when Christ's hand is being nailed to the cross, the hand holding the nail is actually Mel Gibson's hand, mm-hmm. and it's his left hand his on left purpose. Hand. Well, yeah. He he put a lot of thought no, into that mo- movie, that. and yeah. uh, no doubt that was intentional. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So, speaking of intentional, yes, it's been a consecration kind of day here on the Feast of the Annunciation. It is a historic day. Yeah. Um, you know, prescinding from all of the debates about all previous consecrations and any others that popes may make going forward hitherto, uh, it was a it was a beautiful moment. Um, uh, the Pope made us wait a long time for the penance servants to uh, to get a al- move along, but eventually, about uh, I think it was about one one thirty or so uh, Birmingham time, or maybe a little earlier actually, uh, we got around to the consecration, 
And it was a very beautiful prayer, uh, consecrating. Uh, first, it was an admission of sin. It was a penance service. All the ways in which mankind has offended God morally, uh, in the treatment of each other, in the treatment of nations, in the selfishness of individuals and nations, and so on, in the treatment of creation, of which we are, of course, stewards and have an obligation toward. Uh, and then going in there, finally, to throw ourselves on the mercy of God through the <clears throat> intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So I thought it was a very beautifully constructed prayer. And I have hopes and expectations for the fruit of it, praying especially for the, the war in the Ukraine uh, with Russia, and that it will not spread to something involving all of Europe uh, and even po possibly involving nuclear weapons. So um, we can we can hope for that. We can pray for that. And each of the consecrations of the popes, interestingly, have always produced fruit. And there's no reason to expect that that this won't as well. Listen, we talked about this last week. Um, you would have to be uh, completely and totally. Um, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Dismissive of a ton of experiential evidence to hold the position that Our Lady's intercession throughout the ages has not kept the world together. No, and I, I think you would. The number of nations who in their devotional <clears throat> life over the years, we're talking, remember, for, for a millennium and a half, there was only the Catholic Church, and you could even say, by extension, the Orthodox Church, which having gone into schism from Rome, was not in communion, but had the doctrine, the faith, the apostolic uh, succession, and the sacraments. For over a millennia. For, for a millennia and a millennia and a half even, where East and West held the same teaching. And great love and <clears throat> devotion for Our Lady and the confidence which people put in Our Lady is showed by the number of Madonnas that are, uh, are recognized and beloved under national titles. It's all the same Mary, of course, but each people want to embrace her as her own, their own, and in some places she makes that more easy by appearing to Juan Diego in Mexico, for example, for Mexico and the Americas, um, by appearing in Fatima for Portugal, a devotion which is spread to the whole world. And uh, various the various shrines of hers throughout the world demonstrate the the, the faith that have people have placed in her motherly intercession, a faith that is rooted in a historical act recorded in Scripture, which the Pope alludes to in the consecration, and that is at Cana, where before he had announced himself and done any miracles in the world that would point to him as the Messiah and Lord, she made a request, indirectly even, mother to son, by telling the stewards, do whatever he tells you, and he performed a miracle. So that, that trust of nations and peoples for the 1,500 years before Protestant theology sort of got dismissive of that uh, is evidence of the, of the significance of Our Lady and why various national Madonnas and devotions and why consecrations, which is a rather new phenomena of the last uh, half a millennium or so, uh, why those uh, have been successful. Well, I, I was I was going to give a couple examples. I looked into the history of the consecrations, and in 42, Pius XII did a consecration of the world of the Immaculate Heart. Almost immediately, there were changes. The Battle of El Alamein, where, in which Nazis were turned back in North Africa, occurred simply days, within 10 days or so, 
actually on November 11th, because it was the anniversary of the end of World War I. So the tide of the war changed. And even more so in February of the following year, on the Feast of the Presentation and Purification, February 2nd, the Russians defeated the Nazis at Stalingrad, and almost every historian says that was the military turning point of the war because you've seen it in the movies, the Germans trudging back to Germany with their cannons, what's left of them, and their guns and so on through the snow, having been defeated in Russia. That All of those things occurred within three months of that in 1952, Pope Pius XII by himself, not a collegial consecration, but by himself consecrated uh, <clears throat> Russia uh, to the Immaculate Heart in July of 1952. I believe that was, it. That was the date. And uh, he praying especially for them, writing them a letter and so on. And what happens then? The following year, following March, Stalin dies... Malenkov comes in, he lasts like a week. Khrushchev comes in, and Khrushchev ends up uh, condemning the atrocities which Stalin did, the political things that he did, putting people in gulags, letting people out of gulags, liberalizing some of the domestic policies and so on. A full-on communist in the economic sense, but he, he saw the effect of Stalin, and that changed for the Russian people after that consecration. 84, it goes without saying, you know, even uh, civilian historians, if you will, non-Catholic historians, admit the changes that occurred in the wake of the 84 <clears throat> with the fall of the Soviet Union, the ability to freedom of religion in the Eastern Bloc and Russia. You know, so we can expect great things from this one. We don't need to settle <coughs> debates about which consecration is more valuable, which one is more perfect. We know they work, and because this is what our Lord asked at Fatima through Our Lady, to elevate her, and consecration was the means not of accomplishing our worldly ends, although it does that, but to elevate her in the mind of the church and the world, her role in the economy of salvation, and it's doing that, and it's done it. Secular historian, I think, is the word you were looking for. Looking for. You can take the boy out of the Navy, but you can't take the Navy out of the boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a uh, Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. A Friday edition of Open Line Friday. How about that? Mm -hmm. Department of Redundancy Department, right? Yes. If you'd like to be part of the program, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Got a great gift idea here from EWTN's Religious Catalog. My First Rosary. It's a plush baby rosary ring, and it's designed, designed especially for tiny hands. This colorful rosary ring is the perfect way to include everyone in the family in the rosary. It's made of a soft, round, plush center ring that rattles. 
and is surrounded by 10 brightly colored soft beads and a large orange soft plastic teething cross. The plush center is available in blue or pink. It's six inches in diameter. This baby's first rosary meets and exceeds all applicable U.S., Canadian, and European safety standards, and it's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Uh, free standard shipping right now on online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Is this what Andrea used to teach you the rosary after you got married? No. No. <laughs> you're, 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 so, you're so calm. You disarm with your calmness. We already were saying the rosary, as you could imagine. As I could imagine. We were both working at EWTN, Jack. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, you're looking for something, well, aren't you? What are you looking well, for? Yeah, <laughs> now you're looking for something. That's <laughs> not... That's not always an, an, an exception, an assumption that should be made. That's true. Uh, present company included, I might tell you from time to time. Uh, anyway, let's get ourselves out of trouble and go to the phones. Let other people get us in trouble. Very to, good. Let's talk do that. to Marcia, who's a first-time caller in Colorado Springs, Colorado, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Marcia, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to understand something, and maybe you can help me. I was thinking today, the whole world knew ahead of time what Russia was going to do to the Ukraine. And why did the consecration wait until today, after all this death and destruction and all this Mm -hmm. other happening? And why wasn't this done before? Well... (coughs) We're we're cat. God's not captured by history, but we we are. And in, in time, we're living through history. History then comes and arrives and demands that different actions should be taken. Uh, there were a lot of efforts diplomatically, and you could say this about World War II as well. Our Lady uh, prophesied that war. Um, we don't think she directly prophesied this war, but it, it's possible. Certainly implied in the you know, in the historical situation that she foresaw in in God. Uh, But we arrived at the point where the potential for disaster clearly called for it. Now, there's an assumption here that I think has to be put to bed immediately, and that is that tomorrow this is going to change. God uses occasions to offer grace to lead people by their cooperation with that grace. And if he wishes to do a miraculous intervention, as we know from Scripture has happened with Israel, uh, that's possible too. But we can't presume that. That would be the sin of presumption. So we lay it at his feet through the heart of Our Lady, and then we wait, and we continue to use the human means of achieving peace of trying to stop the violence and doing the things there without precipitating more, without precipitating, you know, World War III, hopefully. Uh, And then we leave it in the hands of God. 
Uh, and if you read the writings of Sister Lucia, as I have done, and, and I know many, many Catholics have, there's her beautiful calls to the message of Fatima, for example, on different points of the message of Fatima. And she doesn't get into the apocalyptic and that element too much. But in her letters that she wrote to confessors and other sisters and uh, spiritual directors and so on, you get this this holy detachment that she has and that she calls, basically is saying we should have as well. We do what we do what we're asked to do. Uh, it was only about I, I think al- almost a decade, not quite a decade after sh- the request was made of her that it actually the letter made its way to Rome, for example. The civil war in Spain was on, and she was asked the question, "Well, if this is done, I think she was by a father Goncalves, uh, uh, no, if he was spiritual director or." or confessor at the time, but he asked a question, well, would this include Spain and Mexico where there was trouble and France where there was some uh, uh, agitation, communist agitation as well? And she said, no, because it regards a particular situation, but we can trust to God's generosity. And isn't that what we always do? And and the, the Pope's prayer, I thought, was really, really beautiful in expressing not only our need by virtue of our our moral defects and weaknesses uh, perpetuated through history between individuals and between nations and countries, uh, abuse of each other, abuse even of creation, which of course groans in agony awaiting the redemption of the children of God, as Scripture tells us and as Paul tells us in Romans. So he, he captured all of the state of mankind in that prayer, and I think people were ready to hear that prayer and, and receive it. I think maybe two months ago, as recently as that, nations would have, you know, well, what is this? The Pope you know, trying to be the diplomat here? What's going on? But he got this request from the Ukrainian Catholic bishops, and he followed up on it. And it happened in a, quite a timely way compared to the other consecrations that have happened historically, uh, where you sort of need to build up the momentum you know, are we going to offend the Soviet Union? Is it timely to do this? Is it time? Francis really sort of got to the job rather quickly when it was proposed to him. And that's good. Consecration is a means which our Lord elevated at Fatima when Our Lady said to Lucia, both then and also in her mysticism in the 20s, the, the Lord wishes to elevate devotion to my Immaculate Heart up to devotion with the Sacred Heart. That's the whole purpose of Fatima. All these other things which benefit us came come along as a sign that this ought to be done. And I think the routine way in which in the church now we see the value of consecrations to the Immaculate Heart. Uh, many bishops have done it in their diocese in the last decade. Um, the bishops participated in this one as they did in 84 with John Paul II. We see in the church that this sign has produced this fruit, which was the objective, the final, uh, the final goal of the apparitions at Fatima, to raise up the Immaculate Heart in the view of the Church, and therefore in the view of the world. And I think that's taking place. So I think we have to be a little bit depa- detached. We do what history provides us the opportunities to do, uh, using the normal standards of prudence. And I think that's been done. In fact, the, as I noted, I think the Pope acted... Uh, wonderfully fast in responding to the request of the Ukrainian bishops 
and getting the bishops uh, of the world uh, also involved in that by inviting them to do it. And I bet there were a lot of families like our was around the television making that consecration, couples or individuals in their, maybe students in their dorm room or people in their offices quietly making that. I bet, I bet there was a lot of prayer today during that consecration. And I think we wait on God and Our Lady to do, uh, to do something in response to it. Next stop for us is Plainfield, Indiana. Ava is in Indiana listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Ava, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Hello, Ava. What's your question today, dear? Uh, I have a question about uh, purgatory. Uh, Uh I'm a Christian for many, many years. Uh, I'm not Catholic. And um, in my studies in the Scripture, um, I don't interpret the Scriptures they use for belief in purgatory the same way. And Mm -hmm. uh, respectfully, I, I don't believe there is purgatory, but which leads into my question, um, since Catholics do believe in purgatory, I've often uh, noticed that uh, they preach about purgatory, but when someone close to them, to a person dies, like a family member or friend, they're more apt to say, well, they're in heaven now. You never hear them say they're in purgatory. <laughs> and I wonder if that's just for comfort reasons or why they do that. Bingo. I, 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 think, you, I think you caught us, uh, as they say, proverbially. proverbially. Um, sure. I think we yeah. always think more kindly of their relatives. Now, Granted, there are people in our lives who pass through our lives that we believe are living saints. I mean, here the people who worked with Mother, you know, in all good conscience, you know, would have been prepared to swear as an individual. They don't speak for the church. Yes, you know, Mother Angelica is in heaven. It'll be up to the church to do the process that will determine human reasonably and by the supernatural signs that God gives of the miracles— uh, whether whether that can be legitimately held by all Catholics. But I think, yeah, I think, like Jack said, bingo. Uh, th- the faith of the Church is very old. And, uh, and, and I appreciate that Protestants are so devoted to the Bible, and that's the starting point. But you have to remember, before the Bible, there was the Church. And so for Catholics, the Church is a starting point because on the one hand, it gives us the Bible— that tells us what God has revealed and inspired, so the, the Old and the New uh, Testament, uh, we take that as the, the, the Holy Spirit inspiring those texts through the course of time and ending with the last apostles. So there is no—we have all of this historical matter revealed by God, but we also have living— living pastors that Christ appointed. He did that of the apostles. He does that of the bishops of the church. And so when we talk about saints, who people who are in heaven, the church really has a uh, first a process of reason to determine whether that person lived a heroically virtuous life, and then a process of waiting on God to provide a miraculous substantiation that they are with him. And that's why there are, there's the waiting for the miracle in the cases of beatification first and then canonization. So the church is very clear on that. 
I think you're correct that, yeah, a lot of Catholics uh, would would think that, yes, their mother, their father, their sister, their aunt, their uncle, their good friend or whatever is with God. Uh, and that's not unjustified. That's a, just a human way of thinking, but it doesn't, it's not evidence of anything other than their witness that this was a good person in their mind. And uh, that's fine. But if we look at what the standard of Scripture for being with God is, why did Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect? Why does St. John say in the book of Revelation regarding the heavenly Jerusalem, nothing impure enters in? Then we always have to ask about ourselves and about our relatives, was Jane really perfect? Was she as perfect as Christ, as the Apostles, as the Blessed Mother? And I think the answer in most cases Maybe a little dust on the wings and some spots there that have to be cleaned up, and that's what purgatory is. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Back to the phones we go. Augie is in the great state of Pennsylvania. Listening on Spirit Catholic Radio online, Augie. Thanks for holding. You're on with Colin. Well, I wanted to be anonymous. In fact, I had two questions. He answered <laughs> my first, but I'd still like yours since you're in vice president of theology. But the, my main question is: uh, I, I have a person that I know that says she doesn't pray the Hail Holy Queen anymore because it says um, to to the do we cry. Poor banished children of Eve. She hmm. says, we're not poor banished children of Eve because we're redeemed. Where did they get that theology? That's, that's the first question. Okay. Well, I mean, we are all born as banished children of Eve. Are we not? Nobody's baptized in the womb except, you know, John the Baptist apparently uh, was uh, justified in the womb of his mother when Christ... Uh, uh, when he leapt le- for joy, that's a uh, presumption of the fathers and the church. Uh, Our Lady, we say, was immaculately conceived in the moment. The rest of us, we're, we are born into this world as poor banished children of Eve. And we're praying not only there for ourselves, uh, whether we're baptized and in the state of grace, but we're also praying for all the other poor banished children of Eve that we would like to see in that state of grace, uh, loving Christ, loving God, and living uh, the Christian life. There are a lot of them, you know, billions in the world who are not doing that. So, yeah, if you're only looking that as, you know, me praying for myself, yeah, I suppose you could say I'm, I, I don't need it. I'm not a banished child of Eve. But we all start out that way, and some of us in the world are still in that condition. So we pray for them, and we look to Our Lady uh, to bring them into the world of grace, if you will, the way she brought her divine son entrusted to her uh, into the world of man. Uh, Joe is watching on YouTube, and she asks, Does the Church permit Catholics to believe in a young Earth creation? Must Catholics believe in Darwinian evolution? The Church does not hold either of those positions. Uh, The Church holds that you can proceed by reason in scientific investigation, and you go where that leads, because the God who created uh, all things uh, and left his marks in that creation— uh, he can speak to us through a sort of a natural theology of, of, of creation. And with regards to the Darwinian evolution, 
then that that would be subject to scientific investigation. Uh, I, there are there are arguments for why there are major issues with that that scientists themselves make. Um, I think we've had some of them here on the network at different times. Uh, so I think that's again that's within the realm of science. What the church teaches is that we must believe that all things come from God ex nihilo. That means by God created out of nothing. This is a a, a doctrine of the Fourth Lateran Council in the 1200s uh, that said in the in the beginning of time God created all the material and spiritual creation. Meaning the material is the the visible universe, including us, and the spiritual creation is the angels that He created them semel at the same time at the beginning. And the church then also holds, of course, that ensouled man, we, whom we call Adam and Eve, because those are names expressive of who they were, the mother of all the living and the, the man uh, taken from the earth, which describes our, our natural origin. And from those two uh, ensouled individuals comes this being banished part we just talked about, that through original sin, this has been communicated to all of us by, uh, by natural generation, through, through marriage and parenting, uh, genetically and biologically even. And as a consequence of that, we needed to be redeemed. So the church takes a theological perspective on those matters, and it leaves philosophical questions to philosophers, and it leaves the scientific questions to scientists. Um, and so that'll be dissatisfying both to Darwinists uh, as well as to young Earth creationists, I'm afraid, probably. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines and time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Gabriella is a first-time caller in Los Angeles, California, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Gabriella, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I have a quick question regarding confession. Uh, last mm -hmm. Saturday I went to a, a church that offers confession a little later than um, I normally go to. Uh, while I was waiting, the priest came out and said, if anybody's been to confession in the last eight days, uh, raise your hands. If you've been in the last 15 days, raise your hands. And he, I raised my hands at eight, and he said, okay, everybody go home. You go home. No confession for you. And I was like, oh, uh, a little embarrassed uh, because my kids were there. Um, they went ahead and went, but uh, I just sure. went to my car, prayer, waited, and uh, my daughter, who's 12 and uh, goes to a conservative Carmelite school, just, you know, I didn't have an answer for her, a good one. So that's why I'm on the phone today. And yeah. I can offer her a better answer. I don't know why. <laughs> Jack seeing me steam, and I think he wants to intervene before I have an interve <laughs> another right. intervention I, I think needed there's here. A little, uh, <laughs> a, a little uh, presbyteral triage going on. Yeah, you know, it's one thing when the priest has I have you know to come out, and this has happened to me, and you understand it completely. To say, uh, <coughs> I have the uh, I have the five o'clock mass. I'm the only confessor today. I, I, I'm sorry, but I have to go get. Uh, I will, if you want, I will be in the confessional after mass is over. I've heard that too. Uh, let's just say, if I were a bishop, I would not be happy by the response that you received in your parish. Uh, 
one would hope that it was a mass and not some other a social engagement or something else, and I won't presume to know what he was doing, but it is definitely a non-pastoral approach to the issue. 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Mike, further, Jack, <laughs> the choice of going to confession because it's a revelation of conscience is the individual's. He had no right to ask people how long in public, how long he can do a certain kind of questioning on to get at the essence of a sin in the confessional, that was very well out of bounds. And that that's the part that infuriates me, frankly. Um, you know, I have seen, uh, I, I was once, there's a, a Basilica Parish in a place I used to live that would have large numbers of people for confession. Mm-hmm. And I can remember once that Father, it was clear that Father was not going to be able to get to everyone before the vigil mass started. And he came out and to the group said the first part of the absolution prayer so that he could then move through more people before the mass began. And he probably could have even truncated it in the confessional to the the form, uh, the second part. I know it's, it's... it's a good idea to do that first part, but uh, I think making somebody reveal some aspect of their conscience, such as how long it's been, um, that's not a, in my mind, not a permissible triage of the situation. There would be much better ways to handle that. Next stop is the great state of North Carolina. Jesse is another first-time caller uh, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jesse, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yes, hello. Hey, Jesse. How are you? I'm good. Good. Um, I was calling because for many many times I've heard that if a rosary is not blessed, then our Holy Mother, we're not receiving the graces of our Holy Mother. So I'm like kind of torn in that. (laughs) Balderdash. That was Jack, if you hadn't noticed. (laughs) Uh, you know, you're praying. That's the essence of it. You could use your fingers, you could use your toes. I was going to say, God gave you a perfect set of rosary beads. Oh, I do that a lot of times. I just don't have them handy, or it would be an inconvenience, or I'd bother somebody else to go digging them out. Um, No. The value of prayer is the praying. Now, for getting an indulgence, it, uh, it, of course, it says the rosary, and sometimes indulgences are attached to the objects as well. Uh, so there, there may be a point to be made there, but you're still praying, and uh, any time we pray, uh, God is pleased, Our Lady is pleased. So don't worry about that. Sure, if you, you know, a lot of us have these little plastic rosaries. Very seldom do I. I use them in, by need but I have my blessed rosary that's been everywhere and been blessed by popes and others uh, is generally what I used, use regularly. Um, and that's not, not because the little plastic rosaries aren't, aren't a valuable prayer. You can say that rosary anytime, anywhere, with anything, uh, and it will be a valuable prayer. Does that put your mind at rest, Jesse? Absolutely. Thank you, and you both have a blessed day. Oh, thank you. We okay, appreciate that. You. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Michael is uh, watching on YouTube or listening to an app, or he's doing something other than listening to the radio, (laughs) and he says, can you baptize someone in muddy water? When does water no longer remain water in order to baptize? I suppose when you'd call it sludge, maybe. Uh, muddy water, you know, if if all you had was the water uh, running, you know, in a dirty creek or something like that, yes, you would baptize with that. Uh, it's when common estimation would call it, uh, wouldn't call it water. So soft drinks and coffee and tea, even though the percentage of water is 99.9 plus, are coffee, tea, and soft drinks. They're not water. So we still say muddy water. We still say salty water, ocean seawater. Uh, those are water in the common estimation. So that's the uh, that's the criteria on on uh, on on that. <clears throat> Becky is uh, watching on Facebook Live, and she says, "I am a convert to Catholicism, and purgatory was explained to me as part of heaven. So if you're in purgatory, you're just not in the fullness of heaven yet." Is this the mud room of heaven where you go to get cleaned up before you go in? <laughs> well, I like that. I guess if the mud room is the porch. <laughs> uh, because you're, you're, heaven is the beatific vision. That's what is meant, as John Paul II explained and others before him could have explained it this way, but he chose to do it. Uh, because in, in heaven, we are seeing God as, as he is. Uh, through in in our souls, the intellectual vision of God, uh, not through a mirror darkly, as St. Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 13. So uh, you don't have that in purgatory. So you're not in heaven in that you don't have the beatific vision. You have the guarantee of it, however, the beatific vision. And so to that extent, yeah, it's it's Maybe if it were the really the mudroom, you wouldn't even be there. You'd be someplace else. But it's sort of, you know, got a little dirt on my boots and my pants I have to get rid of. So I guess that's the mudroom. Yeah, very good. You know, uh, our friend John Martinoni, uh, for mm-hmm. my money, uh, I think especially being his, spending his whole life down here in Alabama where our evangelical brothers and sisters far outnumber us and uh, place, uh, you know, we place significant uh, value on sacred scripture, mm-hmm. but uh, when our Lord established the church, he certainly did not establish it to be exclusively beholden to, to sacred scripture, especially since when he started the church, it didn't exist. Um, <laughs> would, be, would be one little piece of, of evidence to that to that. Uh, he might have started a bookstore if that yeah. was his purpose. And while purgatory is not mentioned explicitly yes. in sacred scripture, there are several, there are principles that are established clearly. Principles of justice. In sacred and, yeah. scripture, you know, yeah. the, and, and he points these out, and you can find his work at BibleChristianSociety.com, all one word, mm-hmm. BibleChristianSociety.com, and there's a free, uh, free talk uh, on that site called Mary in the Bible. And the last seven minutes of that talk or so are about purgatory, and he establishes that you know there is a principle established in sacred scripture that there is temporal punishment for sins that have already been forgiven, and he uses the child of David and Bathsheba as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Na- the prophet Nathan told him, "Your sin has been put away; God has forgiven it, but the child will die." 
Yeah. So that principle exists. As you stated on in several places, nothing unclean shall enter the kingdom of God. Yeah. And and in the New Testament, it talks about a process by which we can be purified as through fire, but not be your but but not be used up or burnt up. Yeah, and and who who in those texts, I think in Malachi especially, would 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 be the sons of Levi when there no it no longer is the Church of Israel or the yeah. synagogue, if you yeah, will. Yeah, yeah. So that that's referring to that's referring to the Christian era and and those who become Christians. There's a purification mm-hmm. uh, by fire. There's the running of the race, which I guess you know if you're not the first one across the line, you're only the second or third or fourth. Uh, yeah, there's there's glory associated with that, but you know, the saints have run the race and won and been at the top of the list. But the rest of us may be coming just to get in second, third, or fourth, <laughs> or fifth place will be grand, I think. Uh, Paul is also watching on Facebook Live and wants to know how can a person guarantee their soul's entrance into heaven when their body is done in this life? I think there's a difference between a between hope and knowing. In hope, it is our trust in God. We are to have faith, hope, and charity. Faith means that we believe that God exists and we take him at his word, so we believe the scripture. For Catholics, we believe the teaching of the church, that the church was appointed to to spread the gospel in all generations and all places. And so faith brings us to a lot of the conclusions that we follow as Catholics. Hope means that we trust in God, that he will get us, that what he started on Calvary or started in the Incarnation and in Redemption, he will complete that work by bringing us to himself. But we know how difficult that work is because we're living it every day and he's watching us living it every day. So we're constantly hoping and throwing himself on his mercy and he will not be outdone in mercy. We're assured of that. But that's not knowledge that's not saying, I know I'm saved, and no matter how bad a person I can be, I know I'm saved. Well, if, if you said, I know I'm saved, and if I'm a bad person, I know I can repent and get back in, in the state of uh, justice, that would be true. But just an absolute conviction and knowledge of salvation, as I know Jack is sitting there in that chair, is beyond human power. But we have the power of hope. And it's hope that gives us an assurance of that. And that's what we're relying on. Be sure to check out The Catholic Sphere Sunday afternoon at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. People are falling away from the Catholic Church in large numbers. Join Doug Keck and his expert panel. (laughs) Weren't you on that panel? Well, his semi-expert panel. (laughs) His expert panel as they discuss what is to be done about all of the fallen away Catholics. That's the Catholic Sphere, sphere, Sunday afternoon, 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. And it wasn't to round them up. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel's watching us on YouTube, and she says, where do we get the Hail Holy Queen prayer from? Oh, that's a good question. I think its roots are ancient, but I can't tell you exactly why. Uh, where where in history, but I believe uh, there's a lot of thoughts in there that are very patristic in character, and no doubt somebody will call in after the show and enlighten me. But uh, I can't I can't directly say uh, the the actual vintage of that. And I would encourage anybody to uh, just go online and and uh, just Google, um, you know. Salve Regina in song, and listen mm-hmm. to some of the 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 chants of the Hail Holy Queen in Latin. Yeah. 
breathtaking. They are. It's a very beautiful hymn. It's one of my favorite uh, uh, favorite hymns. It's very often sung uh, after the mass or after benediction, uh, especially if you have a or good after choir. The, off- the office of the evening, right? The uh, office of evening, as uh, certainly our choir at the mass has sung it beautifully on yeah. many occasions. Yeah. Uh, Matthew would like to know: Can you explain the significance and role of holy relics in Catholicism to a Protestant whose tradition doesn't have them, and explain how Catholics benefit from them? Sure. Uh, I I think there are many things in Scripture which basically speak about relics. Think of the woman whose bleeding was healed by touching the hem of Jesus' garment. And what did he say? Who touched me? Because he knew that power had gone out of him. Obviously, as God, God knew that that was happening or going to happen. But he said that for our benefit, for us to know that in coming and taking a human form, a human body, and human nature— he made material things instruments of salvation. And that's what the sacraments are. That's what the sacramentals are. And that's what relics are. The virtue of relics is that they're a part of the bone, the blood, or the flesh of a person who lived a holy life and has been recognized as a saint by the church. And so we see even during his own lifetime that Paul's handkerchiefs healed people. It's the same principle. An inanimate object in which holiness somehow is imbued and instrumentalized for the purpose of healing, for the purpose of praying. And the stories of people who have used relics for to pray over a loved one, and the loved one has recovered, um, and these kinds of stories. I, I For three years in Seattle, I did uh, uh, hospital visitations where I took Holy Communion to the sick. Uh, and I didn't see this myself, but I heard stories from people who said that, you know, my loved one was dying, and they told them they were on the, and Father brought this relic of such and such a saint. And they, they, basically the death process was reversed, and the doctors were flabbergasted. They had no explanation for it. And so it's the same thing with the intercessory power of the saints. We see the same thing. Their intercession when they're with God, but also, as it were, a kind of, quasi-intercession of bringing something which they used in their lifetime, uh, perhaps constantly, their bodies, of course, they did constantly, but a prayer book that they used or something that they touched. People find that very, and it, it makes them manifest hope and trust in God, what we were just talking about. And it's through that trust and that prayer of trust then, combined with that relic or that saintly, the prayer of a saintly person, which God uses to to bring grace into a particular situation, even a grace of a miracle. You know, I, I might dare say, this might be a little bit overstated, um, I don't want to shortchange our Blessed Mother, but practically speaking, uh, here in the United States, I would say that maybe the communion of saints might be second only to the Eucharist in persuading people to start down a path that ultimately leads them to the Catholic Church. It was, and uh, I think it probably is. And surprisingly to our listeners today asking these several questions on purgatory, there was a case of a woman that I know of who came into the church precisely because of the doctrine of purgatory. And that's one that I know. There are probably others who also have come in. Because it was seen as compassionate, they were discouraged by the fate of, she was discouraged by the fate of her mother, because she didn't get a good li- lived a good life, 
But at the end of her life, she finally, you know, sort of returned to the practice briefly, as it were. What about all that debt of sin? Well, we know the sin is remitted through Christ, through reconciliation, through a, a just man's, you know, a prayer turning to God and, and asking for forgiveness. But all of the weight, that temporal punishment, and the doctrine of purgatory gave her comfort, you know, that it wasn't just, well, you're a saint and you walk in the door, but you can be imperfect but want to be with God. And you may have to be to get cleaned up a little bit, but you're still going to walk through that door. That was comforting to her and brought her into the church. And we'll wrap up today's purgatory discussion with <laughs> Anne-Marie, who's watching us on YouTube. And she says, didn't Jewish people believe in levels or something like being in purgatory? I don't think it directly, but they did understand that there were souls after death who were in punishment, a place, Gehenna. We see that in the story in St. Luke of the uh, rich man and the poor man. The rich man went to hell, we would say. The poor man went to the bosom of Abraham. We would say the limbo of the patriarchs where they're waiting for Christ to come. And the one was in the happiness of the knowledge that he would be with God. The other was in punishment. And the man was told, no, I'm not, not going to send the poor man, Abraham said to him, back to your living family to tell them, you know, about this <laughs> destiny. They have the prophets. Let them listen to them. And Christ was using that to say, you have me. <laughs> you listen to me or else. Yeah. The prophets have told you a story and I'm him. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But those, those same Jewish people would still have the same beliefs today and they would think that those folks were still I, I think they would still have, yeah, they would they would have a place of repose that would not be heaven as we understand it, a beatific vision, certainly of the triune God, which is uh, a much more developed idea of that. Well, another hour has flown by and another week has flown by of EWTN's uh, open line. Colin, let's do it again next week. Okay, if you insist. All right. On behalf of our host, Mr. Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. We'll be back at it next week with uh, Father John Trujillo in the house on Monday, talking faith, family, and fellowship on Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. Father Mitch is in the house on Wednesday, talking ancient languages, church teaching, and the like. Uh, Father Brian, the, the vagabond, Father Brian Milady, off on some Lenten mission, will be with us on Thursday. Busy man. And Colin Donovan will be back in the studio again on Friday. Have a terrific weekend. Enjoy yourself at Mass. And until we get together next time, God bless. God bless.